When Facebook acquired Instagram, one of the first systems Instagram plugged into was Facebook's internal spam and fraud prevention system. Pete Hunt was the first Facebook engineer to join the Instagram team, and he witnessed the positive impact that this spam and fraud prevention system had on Instagram. When Pete joined Instagram, the big problems at Instagram were around these fake accounts, the harassment, and the large volumes of spammy comments, and a lot of this got cleaned up. So Pete decided to start a company to build products that would allow this type of spam and fraud prevention as a service. Smite is Pete's company. It provides protection against bad actors on the internet. Complex marketplaces like Tilt, Meetup, and TaskRabbit all plug into Smite to filter their transactions for suspicious behavior. In this episode, we talk about how this type of behavior manifests and the types of patterns that Smite can detect once it is plugged into a data feed from one of these companies, and the event-driven software architecture that the team at Smite has built is reminiscent of the episode on event sourcing that we did with Neha Narketa not long ago. Um, Event-driven programming is increasing in popularity, and at all areas of the stack, which Pete and I get into, it's present at the level of React in uh, JavaScript frameworks, and it's present at the lower level, um, like with Kafka event sourcing. And uh, like I said, Pete and I get into this in detail, so I hope you enjoy this episode, Fraud Prevention with Pete Hunt. Pete Hunt is the co-founder of Smite. Pete, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Today we're going to talk about fraud, and fraud is all over the internet in various forms. At Smite, you are working on some anti-fraud technology anti-bad actor technology. What are some of the canonical types of fraud and bad actors that exist online? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, the first thing that you want to do is, is kind of think about how you define it. And the way that we think about fraud and, and abuse and, and bad behavior in general is just people who are authenticated in your application, but they're using it in a way that it wasn't intended. So a couple examples of this would be um, credit card chargebacks. So somebody purchases a product on your service, they receive the product because you mail it to them, and then a couple of weeks later, um, you know, they, the merchant gets a chargeback and uh, the credit card company basically takes their money away. Um, so you've received the product for free. Another type of fraud would be account takeover. Um, so this is, you've created an account, um, but somebody figures out your password somehow, whether they get it from a data breach or they fish you, um, there's other types of, you know, uh, bad behavior that we look at. It's not just limited to fraud. This includes things like um, spammy messaging on social networks, creating a bunch of sock puppet accounts, um, you know, sending people messages that they don't want to receive. This includes things like online harassment and, um, you know, all sorts of, of bad stuff that you see on social networks. So there's a, there's a wide variety of it. And, um, you know, this doesn't even uh, get into the world of ad click fraud, which I know that you've been doing a couple of podcasts on recently. Absolutely. And I want to talk about some of those individual types of fraud and bad actors, but let's let's start at a little bit of a, a higher level for a little while longer. So um, when did you start thinking about fraud? When did you start considering 
making a business that would try to combat fraud or, or bad actors? So I was at Facebook for a number of years before starting Smite. Um, you know, I was I was I started as an engineer building um, you know the video and photos product over at Facebook. Then later I went over to Instagram and and built out. Um, I was the first engineer to go from Facebook to Instagram. And one thing that I noticed was you know when Facebook made that acquisition, the first thing that Facebook did was plugged Instagram into. Um, Facebook's what they call site integrity system. And this is the system at Facebook that protects all the users um, from all sorts of bad behavior. Like a lot of the stuff that I mentioned earlier, uh, this system helps uh, protect Facebook users from that stuff. And, um, you know, if you take a look at, at what Facebook's value proposition is, a lot of it is, hey, this is a really safe place for you to, you know, put your information and you, you don't have to worry. Um, theoretically, you don't have to worry about a lot of spam and, and unwanted messages coming in. I thought it was really interesting that, um, you know, literally the first project that they kicked off was integrating Instagram with this, um, with a site integrity system. And I wondered why, you know, Instagram didn't have a solution for this before. Uh, so I, and, you know, I had seen how valuable um, or how much kind of bad, bad stuff there is on the internet um, before. So I, I started asking around and looking at the market and realized that there was nobody really solving this problem in the way that the big companies like, you know, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, um, even Yahoo were solving it. And across these different domains like Facebook, Airbnb, Yahoo, PayPal, do the bad actors look the same? Is there some kind of domain agnostic characteristic set that uh, is true of bad actors in all of these different places? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so obviously it, it, it does vary. Um, one of the, uh, the clear delineations is, you know, is this a real person or is this some sort of automated system? Um, so a good example is somebody sending harassing messages actually looks a lot different than somebody who is sending a bunch of automated spam or, you know, doing a bunch of credit card testing where they have a stack of stolen credit cards and they run them all and they try to figure out which ones work and which ones don't. Um, but the one thing that we did notice uh, was that all of these systems are built on the same set of fundamental primitives. So even though the patterns of behavior might be pretty different, you still use the same fundamental building blocks um, to, to identify them you just change the parameters and the policies that you apply. In terms of dealing with fraud, these systems, these businesses like Facebook, they often use manual review processes in conjunction with their automated process, like a, uh, a typical, and this you know gets into the supervised uh, learning process, but the, the, the way it frequently works is you've got this automated system, and uh, if somebody gets flagged in the automated process, maybe it gets kicked to a manual review process. What are some of the patterns that companies are using to integrate the manual review process with the automated process? That's a, you know, that's kind of the question, right? Is um, there's, if you kind of zoom out and, and think about it pretty simplistically, you can identify, you can start to bucket kind of behavior into obviously bad, we can automatically take action on that. Um, obviously good, we don't have to do anything about it. And then there's this gray area of stuff that we um, want to send to humans for manual review. And, um, you know, the real question is, uh, you know, how much does this bad behavior cost you versus how much does it cost for you to perform the manual review? 
And you need to decide kind of what that trade-off is. And it does vary a lot um, between different businesses. Like I'll give you an example. Um, You don't want to review every single spammy message um, or borderline spammy message on a social network just because there's way too many of them and each one probably costs you not that much in terms of, of brand damage or financial damage. Whereas if somebody is making a multi-thousand dollar payment, you'll, you'll probably want to flag that if there's any sort of risky characteristics there. So, it, so it's certainly a trade-off. Um, the, the, the way the workflow generally works is you have some sort of automatic classification system like Smite um, looking at the behavior in real time it puts it into either that um, one of those three buckets, the obviously bad, obviously good, or needs manual review. And um, if it needs manual review, uh, it will go to some sort of queue that a team uh, will start to go through. And then they will will make a judgment on that, whether we should have allowed it or should have blocked it. And then we want to get those markings actually back into that classification system to determine, hey, was this um, a false positive or a false negative? So some specific uh, areas we can talk about are types of fraud that occur in marketplaces. We could talk about social media fraud. We could talk about ad fraud. Um, we should get into these, but I guess we should talk a little bit about Smite in terms of the product and how companies integrate with it. So uh, let's say I have uh, some product like a, a payment system or a social network, whichever example you think would be most fitting, how would I hook into an anti-fraud system like Smite and begin to detect bad actors? Uh, Yeah, so the way that kind of other security and fraud companies have worked in the past is they've used um, kind of signature-based detection, where you drop maybe a script tag on your web page, it does something, creates some sort of unique fingerprint, and then you use that fingerprint... um, then you attach basically a risk score to that fingerprint. So, um, you know, maybe we know that this IP address is a proxy that's associated with with some malicious behavior in the past. And when we combine that with maybe the billing address, uh, we can determine whether that's that's fraudulent or not. Um, we work a little bit differently. We we really look at, um, and this is what I was was talking about when I mentioned that kind of the larger companies like Facebook, Google, LinkedIn. Um, do it a little bit differently. They look at the the user's behavior over time. So the first thing you need to do is get an event stream um, into Smite or whatever classification system you're using. So these events are pretty similar to what you would send to kind of your marketing analytics system, but it might have some additional data in there. So this would be, you know, this user logged in. Um, here are the HTTP headers that they that were part of the request. Um, here's the username that they used. This user browsed around this page. They um, sent this message. Here's the content of the message. Here's the recipient ID. And so we need to get that event stream somehow. So we'll get it from either a, a REST API that we offer, where they just send new line separated JSON messages to us, um, or we can pull it out of an existing um, data warehouse or analytics system. So if you're using Segment, um, you just flip a switch in the Segment console and we start getting those events. If you're using Redshift, um, you know, depending on what data you have in Redshift, a lot of times we can just pull those events right out of Redshift, even though they'll be a little bit delayed. Um, so once we have the um, events inside of Smite, we can start to do a high-level um, analysis. And we, we can kind of turn on some generic rules and models that we have to identify common types of fraud like sock puppet accounts. So if one IP address, for example, like like 
this is the easiest signal in the world, but like one IP address creating thousands of accounts a minute, um, you know, will detect that automatically. Um, or credit card testing, that's another really common, easy to spot type of fraud. But where it starts to get um, more interesting is when you take a look at your application and the unique ways that it can be abused. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a bunch of different ways that you can abuse a crowdfunding platform. Um, and it's a lot easier to abuse a crowdfunding platform than it is uh, maybe an e-commerce application. And so once you, once you start to take a look at the specific application, you start to want to write custom rules, train custom machine learning models. And that's where we start to really get into the specifics of, of the different types of fraud. And so what is the relationship like, how do you develop a relationship with the company? So Tilt, for example, do you, this uh, this crowdfunding platform that you have worked with and helped to prevent fraud, the mechanisms that can be used to defraud a crowdfunding platform, I could imagine very sophisticated systems. So you get hooked into the event stream of Tilt, so you can build up a data model of what's going on across the tilt user base um, and then so what happens next do you do you talk do, how do you train how do you train your system to uh, recognize bad actors do you have to spend some time uh, letting the system uh, bake and 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 build build up its own model for what is bad actors do you have to feed it some some labeled data in parallel or maybe you could just give give me a, a picture of what you did with tilt as an example oh yeah yeah um so you touched on this right at the beginning, which is the best systems are a combination of, of humans and people, or sorry, sorry, of, of humans and computers working together, right? Um, you were talking a little bit about that manual review process for the gray area stuff. Um, so the way that we look at it is, you know, machine learning um, is great and it, it catches a lot of stuff, um, but it's relying exclusively on machine learning has kind of a, a couple of problems. Uh, the first problem is that you do require labeled data. And for a lot of um, fraud cases, you don't actually have a true positive or a true negative signal. Um, you just kind of have these kind of kind of um, events that come in that may indicate uh, that this was a bad action or a good action. Another thing is that in the case of credit card fraud, the chargeback may come six or eight weeks later, at which point, you know, if they did a big fraud campaign, um, you know, you would you would miss um, all of that stuff until you know six weeks later when it's too late. Um, so the way that we kind of think about it is, yeah, we'll, we'll leverage all this machine learning stuff and, and rules-based approach and unsupervised kind of clustering, but we also want to give our customers the capability to create their own rules and train their own machine learning models and basically take all of the intuitive knowledge that a customer has about their system and inject it into Smite. So the way that this works is we get the event stream from them somehow. Then we turn on our generic stuff that catches the obvious um, patterns that kind of repeat themselves across the internet. And then we sit down with a customer and we say, hey, what are the things that you're worried about? Um, do you have any sort of patterns that you've seen in the past that indicate you know, abuse specific to your application? So a lot of times we'll sit down with one of these fraud operations people or PM and they'll say, oh yeah, you know, we noticed that when people create crowdfunding campaigns for vacations, um, the fraud rate tends to be a lot higher. And like that's not the type of thing that a machine learning model would pick up on without a ton of historical and labeled data. But like a human who's worked on the system understands it. So during that onboarding phase, we'll write some rules for them or maybe train a model for them 
And as they start to kind of get get better and better, once the once Smite is is delivering them um, really positive ROI, um, our customers start to kind of take over and write their own rules or train their own models, and they give us a call if there's something they can't figure out. And and they're typically doing stuff where, well, I guess this is they could do whatever they want. They could either uh, respond to a transaction being labeled to, uh, potentially malicious by just canceling the transaction, or they could do something where they kick it to a manual review process. Exactly. And, um, you know, we really simplified um, the workflow here. And we talked, or the different states that a, a transaction could be in as either like good, bad, or in review. Um, in reality, we actually want to create a lot, um, a lot more states for something. So uh, a really good example is if you're um, a social network, you really don't want to kick users off of your system. It's, it's really, uh, you know, false positive in these cases is just really frustrating. If somebody is storing all of their photos with you and then you kick them off, they're going to be really bummed. Um, so maybe, you know, if they're slightly risky, but not so risky that we want to automatically um, take them out of the system, maybe we show a CAPTCHA or maybe we require SMS verification. Now answering CAPTCHA and doing SMS verification is something we could do on every single user, but that'll reduce our customer's conversion rate. So there's also kind of this tension between like how much fraud do you want on your system versus, um, you know, like how quickly do you want to grow um, that a lot of companies face. And we want to actually make that less of a trade-off by only deploying those countermeasures for the risky accounts. These marketplace businesses, I want to talk about these some. They're often making this trade-off in terms of uh, they'll raise a ton of money and the reason these marketplace one of the reasons these marketplaces raise so much money is because of the volume of fraud that they have to deal with and especially these newer types of businesses like Uber and Airbnb have really sophisticated fraudsters that pull all kinds of stuff that's hard hard to see coming because they're so they're so new um, and then of course you've got PayPal which is a payments company and this just like uh, there's all kinds of fraud that can occur over payments uh, certainly sophisticated fraud can occur uh, in a marketplace like Amazon. Um, can you talk more about how you know cut you would build custom uh, rules and what types of rules you would put in place for these different domains and how that would work with Smite? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's just so many ways to exploit these um, these marketplaces as well as other types of products like that. You know, anytime that there's an untrusted buyer and an untrusted seller, there's just so many different things um, that you can do. Um, so, you know, in terms of the different signals um, that we would want to look at, um, you know, one interesting one, um, and I'm hoping I'm not giving too much away to the fraudsters listening to the podcast, um, but, uh, and I can talk about the, the different kind of streaming data techniques that we use to, to actually implement this stuff. But looking at the diversity of um, and distribution of email domains, maybe grouped by the merchant or grouped by the um, the person selling the item on the marketplace. So if you got if you create some item, like let's say that that you have a stack of stolen credit cards and you want to make a bunch of money, you'll list a fake item on a marketplace and then you'll pay yourself um, for this item. You know, get the money and then then run away. So um, a lot of times, if you want to pay yourself a lot you would create a bunch of fake accounts on the buyer side. Um, it's a lot easier to create fake accounts with um, you know, non-Gmail domains or Outlook.com domains. 
uh, rather than you know various other email providers or if, you know it's a lot harder to get a .edu uh, domain, for example. So if we just look at the, the diversity and distribution of those domains, that might be one signal um, that we could use to identify the risky um, you know items on the marketplace. Now, is it is it harder to police uh, fraudulent tactics that are in like th- like that take more than two people? Because maybe the two the two person transactions that are fraudulent are easier to police, and the you know, is, is it harder to police ones that have like more sophisticated, like three-person uh, transactions? Um, could you give like an example of, of what you mean? <laughs> I actually can't think of one. I'm not sure. Uh, I guess most of these are just two-sided marketplaces. Yeah, I mean, there might be like a um, maybe like a, a contract work site where there's a project owner and a contractor and a customer. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you just need a, a flexible enough data model to represent it in your system. And, and that's, that's actually like a lot of the challenge um, is, you know, you've got all these different applications, um, what sort of data model you know, fits all of these applications? And the answer is you can represent a lot of different things with directed graphs. Okay, so is that how, is that how you're modeling this data behind the scenes? Is Because it, uh, it's coming in as, uh, as event streams, and yeah, we should talk about the, the streaming some, um, by the way. So, it's, so I guess it's coming in uh, as event streams from the company. And, you know, the, the, actually the reason we started this, we did decide to do this podcast episode is because we were talking over Twitter about how the back-end models uh, that are popular today look somewhat like the things that are happening on the front end. You have this event-based uh, architecture where events come in in a, in a stream and then you pull events off of this queue and update your data model and that sounds a lot like what Smite looks like. So maybe you could describe. So you've got you've you know you've got for a company like Tilt, this crowdfunding platform, you've got this uh, pipeline of events that are coming in. What happens is you pull those events off of the stream. Uh, yeah. So let's let's talk about exactly how the classifiers work. Um, so we have. It's easiest to think of them in terms of rules, and um, rules can have machine learning models as inputs, but we want to make the final decision as a rule so we can communicate to the user a little bit of information as to why the decision was made. Um, but but you know the way that we train ML models and the way that we we um, classify with rules is is for the purposes of this, this discussion um, not that interesting. Um, so the First thing that you need to realize is that uh, a really powerful rules um, or ML system like Smite is stateful. So it's not just like if country equals Russia, then block the payment. Um, actually, like a lot of companies do that and they lose a lot of revenue because of it. Um, so rules need to, to classify things as well as um, you know do various mutable operations. So this would include um, decrementing a rate limiter. Um, so we say maybe this user is allowed to make 10 payments a day. And when they go below that, um, we want to kind of not allow that payment. So the rule has to say, hey, do we have enough quota remaining? And if we do, um, allow the payment and then decrement the, that bucket. You know, we want to count things too. We want to say how many, uh, you know, unique or how many failed payments did this item in this, this marketplace get in the last hour and compare that to the last day. And if it's increasing really quickly, maybe we want to, um, you know, slow down or stop paying out um, that that item on the marketplace until we can investigate. A third type of of stateful analysis that we or, or state that we keep around um, is uh, it's it's an algorithm called sliding hyperloglog, but it's basically a time windowed set cardinality. So 
how many unique user IDs have been seen on this IP, how many, uh, you know, the email domain diversity thing, how many unique email domains have we seen associated with this item on the marketplace? Uh, and then we also have a graph representation. So maybe we'll, um, we'll add some edges between different entities in the graph and, and propagate reputation between them. So that's, um, that's kind of like the types of state updates that we want to do. And we also want to emit labels from these rules. And we want to say, hey, this particular entity, so maybe it's a user or a payment or a comment, um, has the label bad user or spammy comment or needs review. And the way that we, um, we implement all of this stuff on top of Kafka, we're big fans of event sourcing. Um, so the event comes off the wire from Tilt or whoever it is. Um, th they send it to us generally with a REST API. Uh, it goes, um, that endpoint, all it does is it writes it to Kafka um, and, and we call it a day. On the other side of Kafka, we have um, our kind of classifier that comes in, runs those rules and um, does that classification. And the way that it does it is, you know, if it needs to know um, the value of a rate limit or if it needs to fetch some edges from that graph database or, or do one of these set cardinalities, um, it goes and it talks to um, some internal stateful service that we have. It, it says, hey, I've got this key. Um, you know, what's the current count or, or what's the, um, the 90th percentile or whatever. And it gets that back, does the classification, writes the classification result to Kafka. And we have another tailor that listens to this classification results and then delivers the webhooks back over to the customer. And we have, um, for all of the other stuff, like adding an edge to that graph database or bumping a counter or decrementing rate limit, um, a lot of times those mutations are also events that are put into Kafka and then those databases tail that and process all of the mutations um, through Kafka. I'm not sure if that answered your question. No, it certainly does. Um, that's very interesting. So uh, this event sourcing stuff, um, can you describe why that's useful? I mean, we had this, we had this episode uh, recently about Kafka event sourcing, which I think you listened to with Neha, and this was all about how you, why you want to model your uh, your backend like this. Like, why would you want to uh, have this stream of events that is decoupled from the actual data model? Um, maybe you could just talk a bit about that. You know, for people who didn't hear that episode or they heard it and they're looking for more clarification on why event sourcing is useful, um, maybe you could just give more color on why that's useful. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, Martin Kleppman, who is associated with the Kafka project somehow, not exactly sure. I know he worked at LinkedIn. He gave this great talk at Strange Loop a couple years ago that I saw called Turning the Database Inside Out. And um, that talk just like totally changed my, um, changed my professional life. I thought it was really, really great, super interesting. And he basically talks about all the uses um, or all of the use cases for relational databases and caching layers and search indexes and how um, you can implement them effectively with event sourcing. So the key idea with event sourcing is rather than treat your relational database as kind of the source of truth uh, and the really, really important data store, you treat the event log as the source of truth and the, the really, really important um, uh, database. And for us, that event log is implemented as Kafka. A lot of people are using Kafka for this. And the idea here is that um, if you have a, a, theoretically, if you kept every event on your application from the beginning of time, um, you could spin up a new 
materialized view of that log, which is basically, you can think of it as like a reduce operation on the event, on all of the events from the beginning of time. And then it creates a, you know, the search result that you want. So um, if you take it from kind of like a first principles approach, uh, if I wanted to search for all of the comments that you made um, on Facebook and I was using an event sourcing approach, I, would, I could replay every single um, event from the beginning of time and filter the ones that, that had username equals Jeff and then return those results, right? Like that's, um, that's theoretically possible. But anybody who's, um, you know, like thought about scale realizes that that's, that's going to be way too slow um, because there's just going to be so many events in that stream. So what you really want to do is create some sort of index or mat uh, materialized view of that entire event stream that only, first of all, keeps, uh, keeps the latest version of the comment. So if you made edits to the comment, it squishes them all down into kind of one row in the database. It also lets you look up um, comments by ID. So um, you would spin up a new Kafka tailor that then you know, indexes all of those comment events into you know, Solar or Elasticsearch or MySQL or whatever data store is appropriate. And then if you realize that you need to query your data in a different way, maybe you want to look up all of the comments that somebody was at mentioned in, for example. Uh, you can actually just bring up that tailor um, on the same kind of event log and then replay all of the events from the beginning of time or from a period of time, um, you know, if maybe you want to bring up this new service and only offer it for the, the comments made in the last year. You can basically just start it at some place in that event log and it will eventually converge and come up and it's really, really easy for you to, to bring up new services. And if for whatever reason you lose um, that service, it goes down um, and you have to restore from a snapshot, it's as simple as re restoring from the snapshot and starting from that log where you last left off. So, so it makes ops really easy. Definitely. So are there consistency concerns uh, from your standpoint at Smite? Because if you have this event-based architecture where Kafka is the source of truth, you have these different data models that are subscribing to changes in Kafka, you could potentially have consistency issues with different data sources that are pulling from Kafka. Maybe that's not as much of a concern with Smite, or, or is it? Uh, so yeah, I mean, this is the, the kind of distributed transaction problem. So uh, a little bit about how Kafka works for people that, that aren't familiar with it. You have this notion of a Kafka topic. Um, it's sort of analogous to like a table in a SQL database where you're, you're logging different events into a, a given topic. For us, we have a topic called raw actions, which is where we get all the raw data from our customers. And then we'll have a topic called counters where we store all of the increments and decrements for counters. Um, another topic um, for all of those other stateful services, a topic for labels, which is all the classification results, etc. And each of those topics can be divided into one or more partitions. And a partition is just a shard. So um, when you send a message into Kafka, you can either pick a random partition or you can pick a specific partition if you want to shard by a particular key. So if you really need um, you know, like some degree of consistency, uh, at scale, you really need to, to, to do sharding at that point. And event sourcing lets you do that very easily, right? When you ingest the data, you um, pick the, uh, the partition um, that corresponds to that shard, and then all of the data that you need for that kind of distributed transaction should live on only one shard. Now, if you, you know, can't pick 
uh, one partition for all the different ways that you want to query your data, for example, um, or uh, you have a, a Kafka topic that goes back many years um, and you, you, know, you weren't partitioning it correctly, you could start up another stream processor that tails the old Kafka topic picks a new partition key, and then, then publishes it to a new topic. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. Um, so the the other question I had about uh, the architecture was like, uh, you know, when you were discussing uh, on Twitter, like how the, the back-end patterns are looking similar to the front-end patterns, um, you were heavily involved with developing React at Facebook. Um, what are the and and you obviously mentioned that this the strange loop talk so that was probably uh, influential for you I don't I don't know if it was influential in regard to React also but what are the trends that are pushing us towards this uh, like this event sourcing based model and and how does it look on the front end because you've already explained how it looks on the back end uh, in terms of Kafka how does that translate to what people are doing on the front end with React. Yeah, let me, uh, so we already gave kind of a, a good overview of, um, of event sourcing, you know, on the, on the server side. Uh, on the client side, we're actually starting to see a lot of, uh, of traction with this, this pattern too. There's a, a pattern that Facebook came out with um, that works really well with React. It's called Flux. The most popular um, JavaScript implementation of it is called Redux. And the idea here is that um, every sort of event that happens in your front end, um, you know, the user clicks on this thing, they type in their name, they want to, they receive a request back from the server, goes into this um, centralized um, event queue. And then you have what, what Redux calls reducers and what Flux calls stores, um, basically listening to events on that queue and then reducing them down to some canonical uh, piece of state that is then rendered by your React components. And this is actually exactly the same thing as event sourcing on the server, right? You know, I mentioned we have this topic of events um, or actions that come in from the customer. And then we, we spin up a database that, that creates this materialized view of that event stream that's easy to query. It's the exact same thing um, on, the, on the client side. And it, so, so instead what? of a materialized view, you have a React component. Well, it's a materialized view that's passed to the React component. Right. Oh, okay, sure. If you think of like, the event stream as the source of truth, then, you know, you can almost think of anything else in your application as just some sort of materialized view on top of that event stream. Like even the, the, the DOM structure that eventually gets um, displayed is a materialized view of that state, which was a materialized view of that event stream. I want to talk about advertising fraud because we were discussing it a bit before the show. I know that's uh, that's you know uh, a bit of a distance from the streaming architecture conversation we were just having, but um, maybe we can get back after we talked about ad fraud for a bit. We can talk about how Smite might be used to combat ad fraud. But um, you know, as you've been listening to these shows about ad fraud, you know, you know that I've been interested in this topic. So um, you know, what's interesting to me about about ad fraud is is not necessarily like the size of the fraud because there's probably bigger fraud schemes taking place in marketplace businesses and payment businesses but uh, but ad fraud doesn't get talked about very much and my suspicion is that the reason that people don't talk about it is because if you're 
if you question the legitimacy of the advertising ecosystem, if you if you question its legit, legitimacy at a large scale, then that requires questioning the integrity of Google. It requires questioning the integrity of Facebook potentially. And I mean, I love Google and Facebook. I love these products. So for me, this is almost like a religious person questioning God. But um, you know, you you came from Facebook, so I'm sure you have. Uh, adoration for the company as well and and but now you're spending time in the fraud space uh, maybe you're getting an even more bleak view of human nature than you had before uh, what do you think of online advertising how much fraud is there well uh that's interesting um there are entire companies that are dedicated solely to ad fraud um to committing it or preventing it well, well i was gonna say preventing it um so you know i i'm not a the world's leading expert on this, but I, I do do know a bit about advertising because I did work on it uh, while I was at Instagram. Uh, so the the first thing that um, I think we need to to think about here is that there's two different types of advertising online. Um, there's direct response and there's brand advertising. Uh, for you know, direct response is is kind of you see a message. This is like the classic kind of Google AdWords model. You're searching for something. Uh, you're searching for a new car. Mitsubishi has a link that pops up that says, hey, buy this car from your local Mitsubishi dealer. You click it, you buy the car. Um, there's some value to that click because it, it eventually, hopefully, will convert in a sale. Then there's brand advertising, which is you're watching TV. Um, you might not even be in the market for a car, and you see a commercial for the new Mitsubishi, and you're like, oh, yeah, that does look like a cool car. And then when you later go on to make that purchase, um, you're kind of thinking of, of Mitsubishi when you go to make that purchase. Um, so th those are two very different um, types of advertising with different metrics. Uh, with direct response, um, the way that it's been uh, historically, like like ad ads have been have been priced in, in terms of something called CPM, which is basically you pay some fraction of a cent for every impression uh, that um, of that ad. And that was for both um, direct response and brand advertising online. Uh, Google was interesting when they came out with AdWords because they priced it um, with something called CPC, which is cost per click. And the thinking here was, hey, the whole point of direct response advertising is to get a response. So every time somebody clicks on that, we're going to indicate, um, we're going to use that as our metric um, for, for, hey, this person is engaged and is responding to this ad. And, and it makes sense for the advertiser to pay us there. Um, so there is... Uh, you know, those two systems are, are really easy to gain, uh, game with fraud, right? Because you can just create bots that view a bunch of ads and you create bots that click on a bunch of ads and that will affect the price of, of those clicks or those impressions um, without actually, you know, getting the advertiser any new customers. Um, we're, there's been a shift kind of over the past couple of years um, towards uh, what's called CPA advertising, where you actually measure the attribution from the impression um, all the way to the final sale. And you kind of get paid out based on whether that person um, ends up actually buying a car or not. And this is all in direct response advertising, right? Um, so what I'm, uh, so when we talk a lot about ad fraud and direct response, I'm starting to think that, you know, for the companies that are measuring um, on a CPA basis, that is actually baked into the price of the ad. Does that make sense? Well, so, so you would know it's baked in basically because those campaigns are measured against the sale at the end? Yeah, these, these advertisers are, all, are always measuring the ROI and they're able to measure that attribution or they're able to, to keep track of that attribution. So as there's more fraud in the, um, 
the 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 ad space, you know, the the value of each individual impression is going down. So the price does kind of um, uh, equalize. So it, how what percentage of so is, so the advertising is moving significantly towards CPA. Like are are most campaigns these days CPA, or are they still mostly brand campaigns like CPM? Campaigns? I, I'm not a I'm not an advertising expert. So fair enough. Um, we're we're starting to hit the limits of what I know. <laughs> okay, fair fair enough. Um, do, but do you think do you think it's hard for people to talk about this problem? Because it seems like there's not uh, much incentive for many many people to. To talk about, I mean that's that's my sense in trying to to get people from the bigger companies to to discuss it. Um, it seems like the only interest in preventing ad fraud is kind of coming from perhaps like the big brands like Procter and Gamble or Ford. Uh, yeah, so I think that basically these advertisers are measuring the performance of their campaigns all the time, and if there's not positive ROI. Um, they'll negotiate down like a lower price or they'll, they'll move to a different platform. So I think that there's a lot of, I think when publishers are reporting like, Hey, we, we have this many eyeballs looking at our service. That's when you start to get into this, this world where, where ad fraud is a huge deal. So if you're looking at all these different advertising options, where do you spend your money and where do you spend your time trying out the new platform? Um, I think it's, it's hard to trust a lot of these numbers because, you know, as people have said on, on many previous shows, there's so many bots out there, so many, um, so much low quality traffic, and and when you think about the incentives around brand advertising, where there's no um, action at the end that ties it back to the um, to the original impression, um, that's where the the ad fraud I think gets really scary. How do companies? To, and this this is a question about um, all companies, not just ad advertising companies, but how do companies quantify? How much fraud is going on in their platform? Yeah, that's that's um, that's always the question because just due to the nature of fraud, you very rarely know your true false positive or true false negative um, signal. So a lot of times um, you rely on 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 proxy metrics. Um, just kind of going back to more of our core use cases, um, maybe on a social network, if an account hasn't been reported in six weeks or hasn't had any content reported by a user in six weeks, maybe we'll treat them as a good account. And maybe we'll train uh, models looking at them as kind of the source of truth for good behavior. And then if there's um, you know, significant deviations from that, uh, we'll, we'll treat that as a bad, bad account. Okay, so thinking about the ad fraud space, how, how are you modeling uh, solutions in Smite to deal with that? Uh, with ad fraud? Um, well, we just try to look at uh, user behavior. And um, one of the labels that we apply is is possible bot. And based on a number of different heuristics about the actual behavior that they're performing in the application, uh, we can generally do a pretty good job of, of kicking out the bots. Um, so it's basically you have your monthly active user count that you think you have. And then we kind of pull some users out of there that we think are fake um, or duplicate accounts. And then we say, hey, this is actually your real monthly active user count. And then we can remove all of the impressions from uh, from those, those kind of known botting users. And the way a lot of companies are doing it right now is they're maintaining like shared blacklists or whitelists. And they're, you know, maybe looking at some properties of the device, um, you know, like do they move their mouse or not, that type of thing. Um, but as the 
it, it's it's this kind of like war where we're we're always kind of trying to one up each other, us and the fraudsters. And so as they start to get more advanced, you're going to want to look at um, you know, okay, are they using the service in a way that normal humans do? And in order to do that, you need that that kind of rich event stream. So, could you talk about uh, maybe another another example of? Oh, okay, Meetup. Meetup is a great example. Um, like, this is a case study that exists on your site, um, and Meetup I think is interesting because it's a social network. It's kind of a marketplace, um, and the the types of scams that occur there are like. Uh, I list, saw it listed on your Skype, your site, like dating scams, fake profiles, abusive messages. Can you give an example of how Smite would would solve these types of problems? Oh yeah, um, there, man. There's so many interesting uh, types of attacks that you see. Um, so let let's let's talk about the one that's listed on our website. These kind of romance scams. So uh, basically, what happens is you need to find a a willing victim. And who's who you think is, is likely to, to fall for this, and then you you start an online relationship with them. And so if you, you think about the types of people that would would start online relationships, you try to identify them and you try to, to specifically target them, just like a marketer would would target you know like a like a high value or high likely lead, um, high likelihood lead. And you start sending them messages. You create an account that looks legitimate. You start this online relationship with them. You you do it for a couple of weeks, and you say, "Hey, um, I'm stuck in an airport in this foreign country. Could you wire me some money so I can get home?" They do it because you're their online, uh, you know, relationship, and then they 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 make out with the money. Now, in order to you know create all these accounts and actually be like a convincing um, online relationship, you actually have to be like a real person and invest a lot of time into cultivating these relationships. So it's pretty expensive. And in order to save time, um, they'll, a lot of times they'll do it at scale. And when you start to do it at scale, you know, even if you have um, a great set of really clean IPs to do it from and you, you clear all of your cookies and you have a sufficient you know, browser and email diversity, there's still gonna be unique patterns that, that give you away. You know, there's gonna be certain trigrams maybe that are associated uh, with the types of messages that you send to these people. And so it's, it's all about taking a lot of these kind of signals that may be low quality signals, but aggregate enough of them together and you can get a strong signal indicating, hey, this, this looks like a, like a romance scam. So maybe they're using this unique um, phrase that is associated with it, plus they've contacted you know, N people in the last day and only Y percent of the people ever respond um, and so when we combine those signals together, each one individually wouldn't be good enough, but all together, um, we, can, we can kick them off the service. Right. Now, so when a company adopts Smite, um, do they have to, so how much work is there, do, do they assign like an engineer or a team to keeping the, the model of the fraud up to date, or how do companies typically handle this? Do they typically have entire teams dedicated to to fraud? Or maybe you could explain like how you are seeing people uh, adopt Smite in terms of who is responsible for working with the tool at their company. Sure. Um, so we like to use the phrase trust and safety rather than fraud, even though a lot of what we solve is fraud. Uh, and the reason for that is there's a million fraud companies that try to protect their customers' bottom line. And the difference with trust and safety 
is sure we try to protect our customers bottom line but more importantly we try to protect our customers users so that romance scam for example does it cost meetup money well you know it, it it probably would cost them a little bit of brand damage um, but it's more about protecting their end users and uh so um you know, at, at all of our companies or at all of our customers, there's some sort of trust and safety team that is tasked with protecting the user base. And they've always got some sort of metric. Uh, a lot of times the metric is proactive versus reactive um, responses. So if you report, um, if you write into the, the company and you say, hey, I got scammed on your service, um, that is reactive and we want to minimize those and instead focus on proactive which is, hey, we, we took down that account before anybody wrote in and said that they were being um, scammed. Okay. Well, so as we begin to wrap up, can you talk about what's in the future for Smite? Uh, yeah. So we're, we're actually pushing out our brand new developer platform. So Smite's got this really cool feature right now where we have this, this Git repo and you can you know, write your custom rules in JavaScript and, and push, you Git push that repo and then they roll out immediately. And a lot of times... If you have your own rules engine in-house, you have to wait for your infrastructure team to deploy the new rules. Um, what we're doing now is we actually have a, a pretty cool um, domain-specific language that looks a lot like SQL that makes it easier for you know, more analyst-type people rather than um, engineers to write these rules and push them to production. And we're also introducing support for, for pushing custom uh, TensorFlow models um, to, to Smite as well. Why would that be useful? So why would I want to push a custom TensorFlow model to Smite? Well, the, the choice of TensorFlow versus Scikit-learn, which is the other one um, that we're using, uh, you, you know, does factor in. Generally, like we, we introduce TensorFlow for image analysis primarily. Um, but the reason why you would want to push a custom machine learning model is you will see different patterns of behavior depending on what service you're on. So for you know, one of our customers, which is a large social network um, that you know, like a lot of high school kids use, and they, uh, um, it's it's mobile only. They tend to use like a lot of emojis. And what we've noticed is that there are certain spam, there's certain spam behavior that looks pretty legitimate. Um, but we uh, we basically trained a, a custom classifier, or the customer, or sorry, the customer trained a custom classifier on you know just the emojis in a message, and we were able to actually catch a lot of the the spam on that service. And um, it's funny, you know, we actually rolled that out maybe two months ago and South Park did a, a spoof on internet trolling and called it emoji analysis. And we had a good laugh about it because it's actually <laughs> what we do. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, um, well, Pete, that seems like a good place to wrap up. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And um, yeah, yeah, I hope to, hope to talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow. 